Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, calling for a Gaza ceasefire. What's the problem? Tens of thousands of Palestinians, many of them plainly non-combatants, have been killed since October the 7th when Hamas launched a series of coordinated incursions into Israel. 1,200 Israelis, most of them civilians, were slaughtered and more than 100 hostages taken at the time are still in captivity. Israel's response, designed, it says, to free the hostages and destroy Hamas, has led to the deaths of more than 29,000 people. 85% of the population of Gaza has been displaced. Critics like South Africa have accused Israel of genocide, a claim being tested at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. The latest flashpoint is Rafah on the border with Egypt, where more than a million Palestinians have fled in the hope of finding safety, only to learn that Israel will launch a ground offensive there if the remaining hostages aren't freed by March the 10th, the start of the holy month of Ramadan. Meanwhile, in debating the issue, the UK Parliament has been caught up in procedural rows that seem to make a mockery of the very serious issue at stake. So why is it so hard just to call for a ceasefire. We're joined by Shaista Aziz, once a Labour councillor in Oxford, who quit over Keir Starmer's support of the Israeli government's stance, and Byline Times political editor Adam Bienkoff. Welcome both. And Adam, if you just want to start perhaps by explaining the procedural difficulties with which the House of Commons became embroiled a few days ago. Yes, so in the House of Parliament, there are opposition days where opposition parties can bring forward their own motions and these can be debated on and ultimately voted upon. These are non-binding, so these don't necessarily change government policy, but these have been been around a long time and it was the SNP's turn to have an opposition day and they brought forward their motion on a ceasefire in Gaza. There was then... The question immediately became, how would Labour respond to this? We knew how the government would would respond, but it wasn't clear whether Labour would vote for the the SNP's motion or if they try and put their own motion forward. They did try and put their own motion forward, but according to sort of convention in the House of Parliament, it was unlikely to be called by the House of Commons Speaker because the government had, had itself brought forward a motion. And in those circumstances, normally what would happen is that the opposition day motion would be heard and a a government amendment to that motion would also be heard. But there was a lot of pressure put on the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, to expand that because the Labour Party under Kistama made the decision that they weren't willing to back the SNP motion. It wasn't quite aligned with their own position on it. They believed that there was going to be a big rebellion on Labour benches. Some front benches were probably going to resign from Kistama's front bench. And there was a lot of pressure put on Lindsay Hoyle by the Labour Party to allow them their motion to be heard as well. He insists that his decision to ultimately go for go for that was not because he was put under undue pressure by the Labour Party, but because he was concerned that because passions on this issue are so high, and because there's been so many threats made to MPs of all parties um, on this issue, uh, because there was a huge protests, he says that he decided to allow as wide a debate as possible and to to have a vote on all three motions, so the SNP motion, Labour motion, and the Conservative motion. Now, this caused complete furor in the House of Commons. The SNP were absolutely furious about it, because from their perspective, it looked like 
their opposition day had essentially been taken over by the Labour Party. The Conservatives were very unhappy about it, most likely because they they believed that this was going to put Labour, if if the Speaker hadn't allowed the Labour motion to go ahead, that this would cause lots of problems for the Labour Party. I think that was a consideration for the SNP as well, to be fair. We ended up having a walkout of SNP MPs. We had a walkout of Conservative MPs. Labour's motion ended up passing on the nod. It was a complete farcical situation. There was then a massive rebellion against this Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, and there's been a petition among uh, what's known as an early day motion among MPs, around 70 of whom have now called on the Speaker to stand down. The sort of net effect of it has been that the, the serious issue of concern on Gaza has been sort of overtaken by this sort of parliamentary process debate, which has been going on for some days now. And the SNP motion called for a ceasefire, and many people seeing the deaths of thousands of innocent people and the horrific injuries sustained by ordinary civilians in Gaza would perhaps be supportive of that. Many Labour MPs were supportive of that, which was the reason that Labour brought forward its own amendment that its own MPs could support. What was the key point of difference then between calling for a ceasefire, which is what the SNP wanted in their amendment, and Labour's amendment, which also seems to call for a ceasefire? In substance, there isn't a huge amount of difference between the two motions. And actually, lots of Labour MPs wanted to vote for both. That wasn't in the end possible because of the, the, way, the way it turned out. Between the two motions, there wasn't a huge amount of difference in terms of substance. There was a slight difference, I think, in terms of tone. The SNP motion placed greater emphasis on the responsibilities of the Israelis and sort of was more critical overall in tone of the Israelis. There's use of the phrase in particular, the collective punishment of Gazans and Palestinians, which I think the Kistan leadership uh, objected to. But had Labour's motion not been called, I think a lot of Labour MPs, and actually a fair few uh, Conservative MPs, ultimately would have voted for the SNP motion. And actually, the government ended up withdrawing their own motion on this. Initially, it seemed like it, maybe it was some sort of attempt to get around the problem on the day in Parliament. But actually, we now understand it was because they believed that they were going to suffer a big rebellion as well on the Conservative benches over this issue. So it doesn't just cause divisions within the Labour Party. It causes divisions, I think, right across Parliament on this. So Labour's amendment, and it is very carefully worded, does call for an immediate end to violence. It asks for Israel not to invade the city of Rafah. It calls for aid to be allowed to flow to Gaza and it asks the international community to work towards a two-state solution but also emphasises that Israel can't be expected to abide by a ceasefire if Hamas continues to threaten violence. Yes, that's right. The sort of broader debate is, does any of this really make a huge difference? You know, These, these very long motions with lots of caveats on, on all sides. The fundamental point is, is Parliament in favour of an immediate ceasefire or not? And it's clearly there is a majority for that in, in the House of Commons. I think sort of getting dragged down into procedure and sort of the, the, the slight caveats here and there, I think it kind of sort of misses the point of it, really. And Shaista, I mentioned that you fell foul of Keir Starmer and his attitude towards a ceasefire many, many weeks ago now. What do you make of what has been going on in the House of Commons? Well, like... The vast majority of decent-minded people are utterly disgusted and appalled by the performative nature of politics 
in Westminster. Westminster politicians are playing politics with the lives of Palestinians, 30,000 of whom have been killed, and that's a liberal estimate. More than 11,000 of them are children. And according to Save the Children, one in 10 Palestinian children have been injured to the extent where they have had to have at least one limb amputated. There is an entire generation of Palestinian children now who are going to grow up, that's if they survive whatever is going to happen next to them, as orphans with severe mental health problems, with multiple challenges. And they are currently existing in a slither of land, which is the size of the Isle of Wight, which has been bombed to smithereens by one of the most sophisticated military machines in the world, funded by the US government and others. And it's utterly appalling to see what's going on. And what happens in Westminster and what the Prime Minister says and what the man who wants to become the next Prime Minister says about a deep crisis in the Middle East and a crisis going on for the Palestinian people does matter. Because international law matters, international humanitarian law matters as well. And decency matters too. And the UK government has fallen foul of this in the past, most recently with what happened in Iraq. And here we are again. This is having massive implications, not only obviously first and foremost for Palestinian people, but also here in the UK. Yesterday, data came out showing there's been a 225% increase in reported Islamophobia. That's reported. The full picture is not being shown. And we've seen a massive hike in anti-Semitism. And today, the um, disgraced former Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has the audacity to speak to a national newspaper to say Islamists are taking over this country. It is really horrifying and dangerous to see the denigration of democracy being done by our own MPs. Israel says that it is seeking to destroy Hamas, but says that a ceasefire can't happen until all of the hostages are returned. Would you support that call by Israel? So first of all, um, Hamas taking hostages is a war crime. And all hostages should have been released a very long time ago. They certainly need to be released now. This is a disingenuous position from the Israeli state. Israel is the occupying power. Over the last four months, it has obliterated Gaza. The civilian casualty rate is one of the worst ever inflicted in any conflict in modern times. And if you look at the devastation and destruction of Gaza, there is no justification for this at all. This is collective punishment. People are being starved. Aid can't get in. And just to be clear, this has been going on for 16 years. There's been a siege, a blockade of Gaza. I'm a former international aid worker. I've worked in Gaza and I've worked in conflict-impacted countries. Wherever conflicts are taking place, there is a process. A ceasefire, first and foremost, has to be put in place for all parties to a war, to a conflict, to stop, to cease fire for aid to be allowed in, and for people who need desperate help to be given that help. So I think one of the challenges in terms of the framing of what's going on in Gaza is there are people who claim that Israel is being treated in a way that is very particular because it's a Jewish state. That's not true. Israel has been treated with kid gloves by international governments in a way that other countries simply have not been and neither should they be. Israel has an obligation to ensure that civilian casualties are kept to an absolute minimum. That is not happening in Gaza. It's not happening in the West Bank. And the final point I'll say on this is that 
ultimately the bombing, the onslaught on Gaza will stop. When and how, when it will stop, we don't know. It needs to stop immediately. And when it does stop, Hamas, Israel, countries neighboring Israel and Gaza, Egypt, all these other countries, they're going to be involved in negotiating a process to move things forward. Now, my my concern here is that, first of all, the level of anguish, the level of destruction, death, killing, misery, that price is too high. But also, we are nearly two weeks away now from Ramadan. There is deep anguish, not only in the UK amongst British Muslims and others, but across across the so-called Arab and Muslim world, the goodwill and the desire to find a way out of this on the streets is diminishing. And this matters because it's going to also uh, influence those governments and the way that they have to negotiate with Israel as well. And Adam, I was speaking to David Waring on this podcast a few weeks ago about the Israel-Gaza conflict. And he said that although we may think that the UK's position on this perhaps isn't that important, certainly relative to the United States, we are nevertheless seen globally as a powerful force, that we are a key ally of the United States, and that if the UK government said, now we call immediately for Israel to implement a ceasefire in Gaza, that would have international ripples. We are stronger in some ways diplomatically than we sometimes imagine. Yes, we are a significant player on on the world stage, and I think it definitely does have an impact. I think there's a a debate to be had about exactly how big an impact that is. But I think a lot of there has, I think there has clearly been a shift in the world community in terms of putting more pressure on the Israeli government in recent weeks and months. And I think some of that is coming from public pressure. We commissioned some polling in the wake of the October uh, attacks by Hamas. And we asked back then, towards the end of October, which side of the conflict most people felt sympathy for in the UK. It was pretty even, but there was a slight, slightly more sympathy for Israel's side. We asked that same question again this week, and it's it's completely flipped, and there is now significantly more sympathy towards the Palestinian side. However, it is worth saying that the majority of voters, people in the UK don't appear to have actually a strong opinion on it either way. So it's, I think the for those that are concerned about about this issue and right, rightly concerned about it, it's something that people care very passionately and strongly about. I think for most people, it's not kind of a top of the mind issue. And it's not something that is affecting their vote. But it is something that MPs hear a lot about. They get a lot of mail in their mailboxes about it. There's big protests on the street, as we saw. But yes, the pub- public mood is definitely shifting away from, from support for Israel. We also asked, do you believe that Israel's response has been proportionate or disproportionate? There's been a significant shift in that now. Around half of voters now say, just under half of voters now say that Israel's response to the attacks at Hamas has been disproportionate. Only 70% say that it has been proportionate. Then when you ask whether voters approve or disapprove of the government and Labour's response to that, again, we go back down to the relatively low numbers of voters actually having a strong opinion either way. Although in both cases, in cases of Labour and in the case of the government, voters tend to be more disapproving than approving both of Labour's response and of the government's response. And that, again, has shifted since October. So of those that care about these issues and think about these issues, people definitely have not been impressed with the Labour Party's response and with the government's response to this so far. 
And we know that the government's position has remained pretty unaltered since the start of the conflict, and it mirrors the official position anyway of the United States, albeit that Joe Biden, I would suggest, is clearly becoming impatient with Israel. The reason why I think there's so much focus on Keir Starmer is because he is potentially our next prime minister, but also because this is an issue at some level which has divided the Labour Party, perhaps not a fatal division, but a significant division in some parts of the country. And because Starmer set out his stall as Labour leader to rid the Labour Party of anti-Semitism. Now, I don't know to what extent this particular conflict exposes anti-Semitism, if at all, within the Labour Party, but it will be seen through that lens by some people. I think that was definitely a consideration for Keir Starmer in initial, his initial response to what happened in Israel and Gaza back in October. My own view is that there was a slight overcompensation for that. And I think his initial response wasn't nuanced enough. I think there was an overemphasis on support for Israel and a, too much of a reluctance to criticise some of the early actions taken by Israel. That has gradually shifted over recent months, but it's tended to shift in line with shifts that we've seen on the government benches as well. I think David Cameron has started to become more critical of Israel's actions, Rishi Sunak as well. And it's only as that has happened that Labour has gradually shifted. And there is dissatisfaction among Labour MPs and among Labour Party members about how slow Labour has been to take a more nuanced position. I think ultimately the position that they're now taking is that nuanced position that they probably should have taken from the start. And Shaista, I'm sure like me, you're engaged online and you see the binary division into which some people would seek to drive the conflict in Israel and Gaza and reflect that back here on the streets of the UK. And that's perhaps reflected in the rise in both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism that you refer to. That doesn't do anybody any good, does it? Of course it doesn't. It's horrific. One of the best things about Britain is its rich diversity and pluralism. And sadly, politicians are not doing anything to protect either one of those things. And, you know, I've said it from day one, from when I resigned very early on, after hearing Keir Starmer's horrific rhetoric on endorsing collective punishment of Palestinians, that the way this is being played out here in the UK is that those people who want to divide our communities see this as fuel for their cause. And Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are different faces of the same coin. Where you find one, you usually find the other. And this pitting communities and people against each other is disgusting and deplorable. And this is what the UK government is currently doing uh, with its rhetoric about so-called Islamists taking over the country. On one hand, we've got a democracy that is really fragile in this country. Voter turnout is very low. There's, you know, uh, barriers being put in place by the Tory government uh, for people to vote, etc. And then you've got engaged citizens who are outraged by what's going on, the, the mass killing of innocent civilians. So they're out on the streets, they're protesting. They're not hate marchers. They're not anti-Semites. They are not Islamophobes. Yes, of course, there are going to be pockets of those people present there as well. And they should absolutely be called out dealt with by the authorities but these are everyday people who are absolutely anguished by what they're seeing and it's quite incredible isn't it to see this kind of rhetoric 
being applied to people who are anguished at seeing the mass killing of innocent civilians and who want to see peace for Israelis and for Palestinians. And for me, this is not a binary issue. There can be no safe and secure Israel unless there is a safe and secure Palestine where Palestinians have a state, where they have dignity, where they can access food and water like all of us can. There can be no security for either, either set of people unless there is security for each of them. This is the longest running military occupation anywhere in the world. And the outside world seemed to have forgotten about Israel and Palestine. And it does until something happens like this. And then everyone starts talking about it again. Well, I think this is very different to what we've seen in the past decades. This is very, very different. And I think there's also something here about a contract that's been broken, particularly with the Labour Party and a lot of ethnic minority communities, not just Muslims, I'd like to add. There's a contract that has been broken. There is this sense that our lives don't matter, Muslim lives don't matter, Palestinian lives don't matter. And I've seen this contract broken in a way that I haven't seen before. And the Labour Party has not done itself any favours when it comes to giving carte blanche support to the state of Israel, when it, it should have been holding it to account and demanding an end to the onslaught of Gaza. And it still hasn't done that. This motion that it's put forward doesn't call for an immediate ceasefire. It's another form of alphabet soup that is still being uh, delivered by the Keir Starmer's Labour Party as more and more Palestinians are being killed and maimed. Shaista, thank you for your time. Shaista Aziz, thank you also to Adam Bienkoff, the Byline Times political editor. Don't forget as well, if you want to support this podcast, the best thing you can do is take out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's a fantastic monthly newspaper, which drops through your letterbox. You can also get it at selected newsstands as well. To take out a subscription and make sure you never miss a copy, head over to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production in Birmingham by me and Harvey White. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.